Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Fly Racing Racer X podcast. It is Saturday, December 9th today, and I'm repurposing this podcast today on the feed. Rick Simon, a.k.a. Super Hunky, longtime editor of Dirt Bike Magazine, has passed away. And, uh, yeah, man, I was super happy to get to do this. I think I did this in 2008, 2009, something like that. Long time ago, grew up reading Rick, of course. Guys like Rick, guys like Jody Weisel, guys like Tom Webb, just uh, uh, icons in the moto media world. They brought us the pictures, they brought us the words, and they described the sport to us. And Rick was no different, uh, though maybe funnier. He, some of his columns are, are really, really good stuff and really funny. Seek him out on the internet if you can. As I said, his longtime uh, editor at Dirt Bike Magazine, and he really was a great guy and really funny. Longtime advocate, too, for not just racing, but like riding your dirt bike in the desert and all of that. He was very much involved in all of that. And uh, Rick did a lot for the sport, a lot for the sport, to introduce it to a lot of people in his usual humorous ways. He was a strong-willed guy, real principled guy. It cost him some relationships in the industry. It might have cost him his job at Dirt Bike Magazine at one point, as he gets into in this podcast. Kind of rings familiar to me a little bit. But, uh, yeah, man, we lost him today, December 9th, 2023. Great dude. Really funny. So to have a listen to one of the uh, Moto Media icons, Rick Simon, talk about his story, talk about what he thinks about four strokes also, and, and much more. And uh, good guy. R.I.P. Super Hunky. Lived a full life and uh, really happy to have gotten a chance to do this podcast with him. So, hope you enjoy it also. A Pulp MX Network production. Welcome to the Fly Racing Steve Mathis Show presented by Maxis Tires, Renthal, Motosport.com, and Kuba Links on RacerXOnline.com. With your continuing gracious support of our sponsors, we're thriving at over 1,800 podcasts delivered with over 20 million downloads. Click the Amazon banner on Pulp MX to help us out. Donate via Patreon if it suits you. And as always, enrich your moto lifestyle by working with the sponsors who support us. The original moto podcast. Featuring legends of the past, stars of today, season previews, race reviews, introspection, opinion, facts, and laughs. Here's the voice bringing it all to you, Steve Mathis. Welcome to another edition of the Creator Series. Here on the Steve Mathis Show. Thank you for listening. Appreciate it. Love these trips down memory lanes. This one is with Rick Super Hunky Simon. Rick was really, uh, I don't think he started Dirt Bike Magazine, but he was definitely the guy that took it to new levels and as a bit of a shit stirrer at the same time and seemed like a really good guy over the years. Really funny stuff to read, uh, especially now when you go back and read it. It still holds up, man. Really talented guy. He could ride a dirt bike. He could ride a funny story. He could be witty. He could be cruel. He could be funny. Uh, it's it's really, really a, a golden era of motocross journalism that Super Hunky presided over. And I was pumped to talk to him. I found his number, I think, through Coombs. Called him in Mexico, I think. He was living there. I don't know what he's doing now. This is 2009 era. But uh, some great stories, some great times in moto journalism. And he, with, along with Jody, 
And along with Davey, I think, uh, Davey's Racer X magazine also changed the way Moto Media went. I think they uh, are really raised the game. Dick Miller as well in the early days of MXA. It's how we affected ra- reading about dirt bikes, reading about racing, and everything else. We all grew up on it, and I was stoked and uh, pumped to find uh, Super Hunky doing well down in Mexico and uh, talking about uh, starting the magazine, starting at the magazines, and sort of the controversies that went without it. His, his thoughts on four strokes, which still hold up today for many people, uh, are classic. So please enjoy another creator series with Super Hunky. Welcome to the BTOsports.com Transworld Motocross Podcast Show. I'm your host, Steve Mathis, and uh, it is truly an honor to have this guest on the line with me. It's uh, somebody I grew up reading, somebody that uh, has disappeared from the scene in recent years, but uh, I tracked him down with some help, and uh, and now he's on the show. So uh, do I call you Super Hunky? Do I call you Rick uh, Simon? What, what works? Call me anything but late for supper. In fact, the the reason I was gone 15 years, uh, uh, there was a court battle we had with the Sahara Club and the Uh land use thing. And after the seventh court battle, we won six, and we lost this last one. And I said, the hell with it. I'm going to Mexico. And I moved uh, lock, stock, and barrel to Rosarito and Baja. Yeah, and I was there 15 years. Wow. And uh, 14 and a half of those years were fantastic. They were really good years. Uh, you couldn't ask for anything better. I could open my garage door up, and between the ocean and my house was one mile. Nice. Uh, and I had I had motocross tracks laid out there, a Grand Prix track. I could go all the way from my house to Tocati off road. Uh-huh. It was it was it was really great. Um, and for those who don't know, actually a proper introduction. Uh, Rick was uh, is super known, better known as Super Hunky in the magazines. Was the editor of Dirt Bike Magazine. Definitely in its glory years, a, a major uh, publication um, that took our sport, brought a sport to the to the masses, I guess. Or how long were you the editor at Dirt Bike for? Well, uh, I started. Well, actually, I started out selling ads for Big Bike Magazine before uh-huh. Dirt Bike existed, and uh, I was a distant regular old ad stroke, and then. Uh, we uh, went more and more and more. I, I kept seeing more and more action happening in, dirt, in the dirt bike thing, mm-hmm. and I was I was a dirt biker myself. I'd go out and race on weekends and whatever on old crusty grease and crap like that. And then I went to the publisher, and I said, hey, let's start a dirt bike magazine. He says, what's a dirt bike? <laughs> oh, jeez. Yeah. So I, I finally badgered the guy and talked to him enough to try one shot of a dirt bike magazine, and the thing took off. It's 33,000 circulation, the first first issue of dirt bike ever and uh, what, year 19, was, what year were this about? 1971 yeah. the 71. june issue of 1971 and we took that uh uh the second time around we took it two to 275,000 circulation wow a- abc audit uh there were three magazines were the three fastest growing magazines in the united states in 1974 number one was penthouse yeah number two was national lampoon and number three was dirt bike wow and uh, unfortunately bill golden publisher went back east all the time which is where he was from he's from new york he went back east to a publisher convention and he kept running to these guys who rolled hacks they they did three modern bride crap like that mm-hmm. and they kept, they kept saying gee you got some real good numbers here bill uh, if you just did the magazine right we could have some really great numbers and he said oh yeah so he'd bring these guys back as a vice president put them up in a house give them a credit card and a car and the whole thing and these guys did not know a motorcycle from a toaster, and they would badger me and drive me crazy and drive.
drive me absolutely nuts. So in late 74, I left for the first time. Uh, I went and took over Modern Cycle, uh-huh. and uh, we took Modern Cycle, which was a failing publication. And it, was just, it was just going completely downhill. And we took that one, did real good that, and I took over uh, Dirt Rider, which was there, Minicycle BMX. Uh-huh. And I found myself as an editorial director of all three of the publications. I took those and ran them for four years. Uh, meanwhile, Dirt Bike Magazine went from 275 down to 101. Doing it the right way, though, according to the, to the modern bride guys. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, the modern bride guys, they, they, would, they would last. Well, I'll give you one example. Uh, I got called in the office in 1974 by a guy named Jack D. Fox. He was a, uh, a bank uh, advertising guy. Uh, uh-huh. He advertised for banks in New York. He says, Simon, he said, we have we have a real problem here. I said, okay, Jack, what's the problem? He said, well, we had a meeting with the people from Honda, and you agreed not to say Jap bikes. I said, yeah, I agreed, because we did have a meeting there, and yeah. the VPs from Honda came up, and they said, please, you guys are saying in your magazine, Jap bikes, and so forth, so please don't say that. It offends us. So Bill looked at me, and I looked at him. I said, okay, I won't say it anymore. So he says, so you have broken our, our little wish. I said, what are you talking about? He says, right here, right here in this story, you have the Honda XL185. Uh, XL175 has Nitto tires. Huh, if that isn't a racial slur, I never heard one. <laughs> I said, Nitto tires? I said, Jack, Nitto tires is a brand. He said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can fool some people. You can't fool me. Yeah. I know what Nitto means. I said, Jack, I'm telling you, Nitto tire is, is a tire. He said, no, 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 no. He says, you get this typewriter right here in front of you. Take my electric and you change this copy right now before it goes through the yard department. Uh-huh. And I said, okay, sit down. So I sat down in front of his IBM electric, got it in both hands, and threw it through his window. And it landed <laughs> on a Ventura Boulevard from the second floor. And uh, about half a day later, I gave my uh, my resignation letter. <laughs> nice. <laughs> that's, nice. That's, that's the kind of stuff we had. And uh, in 79... I got a phone call from Dick Miller, and he wanted to go to lunch. Mm-hmm. And Dick Miller was at Motocross Action at right. the time back at the High Torque. And uh, so he came to me, and he said, Rick, he says, uh, we want you to come back to Dirt Bike. He said, we know you're not happy over here doing uh, – at that time, they I, I was doing all the car magazines, Street oh, okay. Machine, yeah. uh, Street Rider, stuff like that. And uh, I wasn't really happy. I was making good money. But um, Dick said, look, dirt bikes is really going bad. He says, uh, Bill, Bill Golden wants to see you. I said, well, you tell Bill Golden he can see me, but it's going to cost me 200 bucks for consulting fee. He said, oh, Jesus, you just don't push it. I said, yeah. no, that's i got to have 200 bucks, or I won't even talk to the guy. Yeah. So he says, okay, I'll see what I can do. He just sighed. He went back. He came back a little bit later with an envelope. He said, okay, here. I looked inside the envelope. There's two $100 bills. Yeah. I said, okay, he's got 10 minutes of my time. <laughs> so so uh, the next day, I met Bill Golden at 10 o'clock in his office. I walked in, and he called me names, and I called him names, and you son of a bitch, yeah, man. Yeah. You son of a, we called each other. It sounded like a bunch of old bosun mates meeting again. <laughs> and then, then he gave me a big hug, and I gave him a big hug. He said, look, he says, we've got problems. I said, what, what kind of problems do you have other than your magazine's dying? Yeah, he said. Well, I, I started all these magazines: uh, RV World, uh, Women's 
feminine um, um, fitness and soccer corner and all this other stuff and yeah. runners world and and they're all dying every one of them they, there's a thing called advanced publishing you know what public, what advanced is no well, when you get an advance, when you have a track record, it's pretty good. Like Dirt Bike and Motocross Section had a good track record of yeah. making money. So if you make another magazine like Fun Dog Magazine, uh-huh. and you print 100,000 copies, and you go through your distributor, your distributor gives you an advance on estimated sales that are going to be. Uh, okay. That yeah, going yeah. to be. Yeah. Because you have a good track record, and you, you, the minute he gets the okay from the, the uh, printer that you have indeed printed 100,000 Fun Dog Magazines, they send you a check for, say, 25%. Right. They're called, called an advance. Yeah. Well, he got, he got advances for all these magazines. Well, in the magazine business, you don't know what your or what your actual sales are till six months after the off sale date. Okay. In other words, in other words, you have the January issue. Yeah. You don't you don't really know what the January issue did in actuality until June. Right. Okay. So here here's Bill Golden. He's getting all of these magazines. He's getting advances on, and they're all selling like six percent, eight percent. And now there's a, the guy is owing a lot of money. And this went on for quite a few years, and he owed several million dollars. I couldn't tell you what the exact number right. was, but uh, he said, "I got real problems. I got to turn this thing around. Uh, I want you to come back." I said, "Well, I don't. I don't want to come back. We left under pretty bad terms." He says, "You come back, and you can have a total free hand." Oh yeah, oh, yeah. Whoa. <laughs> I said, yeah. So I, 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 I demand a lot more salary. Yeah, obviously. And, yeah. Uh, and I said, I want a free hand. I want to hire and fire anybody. And I want to take Paul Clipper with me because Clipper was working with me over at uh, Challenge Publications where yep. we were doing the car books. And uh, we uh, we, had a, we had a good time. So, so me that, was Clipper in, went, that would have been in 78, 76? 79. 79. 79, okay. Yeah, yeah. So from 79 so, till... So 79, I said, Bill, how long do I have to turn the magazines yeah. around? He says, you got maybe six months or they're going to close the door. I just all whoopee. I, I just left a real sweet little niche over to challenge all the yeah. patients. Thanks a lot. Uh, to, take, to take this death strap here. So uh, we, we did the first issue in 79 with Galen Mojer on a cover, climbing up the, going up the Matterhorn uh-huh. and jumping a jumping Nissan and stuff like that. We were giving away a truck. Yeah. And the, we sold a whole lot. I think we sold 140 thousand first issue and it went uphill 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 steadily from there and it grew and grew and grew and we had another runaway success again i fired all the guys who were still in charge of the magazine they're just running it into the ground yeah and uh, you know let me give you an example i won't name names but the guys who were doing a magazine one of the guys who went who did the magazine who did dirt bike went from there to mother jones magazine <laughs> what is that what i don't even know what that is what mother is it? jones it's an eco freak magazine oh okay Okay. Nice. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Real so nice. They're the guys that talk about you know hiking in your yeah. in your in your uh, uh, funny earth shoes and whatever. Yeah. Anyway, that's the kind of guys that are running it. Right. Uh, so anyway. Wow. So um, we took dirt bike over and we ran. We ran really wild. We Clipper and I had a great time. Mm-hmm. We had uh, we had Ned Owens, and that was good, a good writer, uh, sort of a wild man, and uh, he, was, he was never on time. We that was a battle we fought there. We had. <laughs> Then we had we had Dick Krause, Mr. Know It All. Yeah. We had we had, we had a, a, just a damn good time. Uh, it's probably the best job I ever had in my whole life. Unfortunately, did you hire Wolfman too? 
We hired Wolfman. Yeah. Uh, we had to let Ned Owens go because as good as a writer as Ned was, uh, the word deadline meant nothing to, uh, to Ned. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, Clip, Clipper and I would would be on deadlines the night before a, a magazine was due. Yeah. And he call, he'd call me up at 1 o'clock or 2 o'clock in the morning. He said, I can't find, I can't think of a column. Give me an idea for a column. I'd say, shut up and go to sleep. He said, if you don't give me an idea for a column, I'm going to call you every 15 minutes to keep you awake all night long. <laughs> I'd say, God, I'm your boss. He said, Oh, screw you. He said, give me an idea for a call. I said, okay, do an article on cranberry shortcakes. <laughs> he said, okay, good. So he threw a call on how to do a recipe. And it was it turned out to be damn funny, yeah, really yeah. funny. And Clipper and I had, and the real neat thing about our deadline was, the day of deadline, we all walk in the office with all our stories. And I'd give my stories to Clipper. He'd give his stories to me. I'd give stories to, to a web whatever. Mm-hmm. We'd all go back and forth, and we'd all just roast each other. Any mistakes, anything wrong, we'd just look at each other and cut each other to pieces. Right. It was re- it was really really tough, and it was, it was no holds barred, man. It was just it's just fantastic. We had good good writing. Yeah, no, Ex- uh, excellent, ex- excellent writing. It always struck me, uh, you know, growing up, uh, there was only three magazines: there was Dirt Rider, Dirt Bike, and, and MXA. And Dirt Bike always struck me as uh, sort of the and don't take this the wrong way. But the uh, the less classier publication, do you know what I mean? Though, like it it, yeah. it spoke oh, to it spoke to the everyman a little bit more than say look, the other two. Look, 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 absolutely right. Because I'll tell you what. Because I was just an ordinary guy. Just uh, to me, my idea of heaven was I had my garage full of test bikes. So that, that's all I needed, right there, yeah. test bikes. Yeah. I had all these bikes at my disposal. I didn't care about uh, all this funny stuff, a great title, being Mr. Editor, flying to, to this place, that place going to Japan, going to here. That that didn't mean a whole lot. So this stuff you had to do. To me, the, the great thing was getting in my, my El Camino or my van on Sunday morning and going out to the racetrack, uh, going out to the desert, me and my buddy, my buddy Tom or my, my friends, my test riders, and going riding. And we'd go out there, we'd stop at Pickle Bills, and we'd have breakfast out there, and we'd uh, all we knew the guys were, the guy the guy had a Boltaco, this guy had a Husky, this guy had uh, you know a Honda, and that's, that's all we knew. We we all talked together. We all we all signed up. We all raced. We had a good old time. We, on our way home, we'd stop, uh, have a beer and a hamburger, and we the stories would flow. And I'd go, whoa! I'd listen to these stories, and that's where I got most of the stories from. Right, right. Because all these guys, the straightaways would get faster, the hills would get taller, the bikes would get more powerful, <laughs> and you you listen to all these guys bullshitting with all these yeah. great stories, and uh, I, I just put them down. And yeah. that's that's how the, the great things happen. And, so so yeah, you were you were yeah. there. Uh, so you so you started again in '79, and then uh, well, how long did that go for until about '86? I guess. Uh, well, but uh, late '85. Okay. Late 85. I remember but some all of a sudden super me, hunky was gone. Well, let me let me tell you one thing that happened before. Uh, about oh '83 or something like that, we did a chain lube shootout. Uh-huh. We tested a bunch of chain loops, yeah. and that, that's one of the things that uh, dirt bike really tackled head on. We we weighed bikes, we dynoed bikes, uh, we took things, we 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 would do things that other people wouldn't do. We tested oils. We uh, Jim Hawley jumping at Goldwing. <laughs> oh yeah, we did wild things. And one of the things we did was uh, we kept seeing all these different chain loops. 
lubes. Everybody said, won't fling or fly off. Right. The chain will last. We didn't know what the hell one lube worked for another lube. So what we did is we got, gosh, like about a mile's worth of chain and uh, some starter salt to clean the chain in and a whole bunch of counter chest sprockets from Suzuki, a bunch uh-huh. of RM125 sprockets. And we took my shots, a shopsmith. You know what a shopsmith is? Yeah. A, it's a combination drill press, lathe. Yeah, kind of it, a you know, do-it-all machine, down. yeah. Yeah, yeah it's a do-it-all machine. You can put it straight upright into the drill press. You lay it down. It's a lathe. You lay it the other way, a woodworking tool. It's it's a, a sort of a do-all kind of a big thing. It's the size of, of a piano on its side. So we fixed the thing up to where we had uh, two counter shaft sprockets on there and about a three-foot length of chain, and we calculated out that the chain would be doing about, about 70 miles an hour mm-hmm. and right between these two, two counter shaft sprockets. And uh, what we do, we clean the chain perfectly clean and started solid. Then we put the chain loop on it uh, according to the directions, and then we uh, let it wait according to the directions. Then we put a, a white card behind it, and then we'd spin it up, yeah. and we'd see what, what stuff splattered and flew off. And every, every one of the chain loops splattered and flew off and left all the stuff. We showed pictures of that. And then um, we ran the thing for uh, about 70 miles an hour for an hour. And then we put a temperature gauge on it, a temple stick and a temperature gauge. And then we took a microscope and we checked the the scar marks on it. We tore tore a few links apart. Uh We typed the scars on it. We found out what what chain loops worked and what didn't work. And I can't remember what what chain loop did. It was terrible, but it was it was one of the dry loops, one of the graphite dry loops. Uh-huh. It it left big scars on the chain, and it left a black film crease. It was terrible. Yeah. And it, it came out really bad. Well, we're, well, anyway, while we're out doing the testing in the garage, my little eight year old kid Ricky walks out, and there's this, there's this machine just howling away. It's going, yeah, yeah. <laughs> making this weird sound. And the kid, who, Dad? What's that? Is that the wind in the dark? this machine and uh, yep son that's the WITD machine the old wind in the darkness machine so anyway so I didn't think a whole lot about it the the story came out and all of a sudden I get a call from Bill Golden Uh to come to come to the office and we go to the office and there's the usual thing there's the guys the two guys that own the company from the chain (laughs) company there's a couple of lawyers standing there you're like I've seen this before (laughs) and they're oh I've been there I've been there so many times to the office and these guys, these guys are bright red. They're just. He says, "You." He says, "You. You. Know, our sales just went, just died. They went to hell, and we can't do anything." And oh my God, blah blah blah. We're, are you an engineer? How do you dare do this? And where do you get off doing this stuff? Uh-huh. And they're just, they're just getting in my face like you can't believe. And I said, "Hold it, just, just a minute, you guys." I said, first of all, number one, we tested a chain of using a standard WITD machine." <laughs> Yeah, and they just look the, at each other. Yeah, yeah. The wind of the darkness is here. Yeah. We didn't say wind. Yeah, we, yeah. we use a standard WITD machine. Yeah. And the, the the vice president turns to the lawyer and says, well, what they, what's, this, what's with this WITD machine? The lawyer says, was it a standard one? He says, yes, it was a standard WITD machine, about two years old. Says, oh, okay. So um, <laughs> I said, so if you want me to take this machine and do it in front of a judge, then we'll do that. But you're, that's the way your machine came out. Yeah. Your, uh, your chain... Your chain of work down there, you know, standard <laughs> WIT machine. Anyway, so they left. They just grumbled and left. Yeah. So Bill Gold calls me and he says, when did we get a, a, 
WITD machine. I said, it's a window in the darkness machine. And he says, you son of a bitch. He says, how can you do this to me? He says, you put my balls out of the line. Good, good Lord. Yeah. And that that's the kind of stuff we did back then. Oh, yeah. That, that, yeah, I think I remember that article. I really think I remember that one. It's that time. Time for a commercial. Sorry, guys. Got to pay the bills. Thanks for listening to the BTOsports.com podcast show. Please don't forget that BTO is the world leader in aftermarket motocross parts for the bike or body. You'll find deals like a Shoei VFXW helmet for $309.99, 45% off, or Smith Piston goggles for $32.99, 65% off. Your order can be shipped anywhere in the USA for free. Or if you're not in the USA, we ship worldwide. Check it out at BTOsports.com. So what? What but made you? What you, made, you, you, you didn't. You didn't read that part in the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. The WIT, the uh, machine, yeah. What was the worst? The worst thing you got in trouble for? All those years. Oh, the worst thing I got in trouble. Yeah. Uh, well, actually, after after I was there about three and a half years, the second time, mm-hmm. uh, they weren't making money fast enough because they stole money to distributors and the printers. Yeah. Okay. Big time money. So they brought in uh, uh, Roland Hines is an efficiency expert for New York, and uh, Roland Hines is a guy who owns High Torque now. Yeah, I thought he owned it. He never always owned it. He didn't start it. Mm, nope. Oh, nope. Okay. Bill Golden, Bill Golden owned all that. Time. All right. And so Bill Bill Golden was nothing more than a figurehead and got fifty thousand bucks a year. That's all he got. Yeah. And all he did was sit in his office and eventually he just he just didn't even sit in his office anymore. He just <laughs> he was so bummed out that he had no power whatsoever. And yeah. and uh, Roland Hines had all the power in the world. Well Roland Hines and I just we just we we didn't hit it off let me <laughs> to put it to put it mildly, we didn't hit it off. Yeah. He was a very, very religious guy. Yeah. And he yeah. made us he made us Go in the office and take all the posters down. All the girls sitting on the on the bikes with their with their bikinis and stuff like yeah. that. He said, "I won't have pornography on the walls." I went, "What the hell? These are just <laughs> girls in bathing suits, you know? Yeah. I won't have pornography." Oh, jeez. So anyway, uh, Roland and I we hit it off real bad. So one time uh, we were going down. To, uh, uh, going up to Indian Dunes, me and Clipper and Webb, and we had this Mako had the forks on tailgate of this uh, El Camino I had, mm-hmm. and we were we were doing uh, rebuilding the forks according to Mako, just modifying these forks. We had taking photos, step at a time, putting these yeah. springs in, putting these spacers, and just modifying these forks to make them really, really, really bitching, right? Right. So we had all these tiles on our tailgate. It's a Tuesday at Indian Dunes. And we're we're working on this thing. We're spraying with contact cleaner. We get it all nice and clean. We're working. And here's Roland Hines comes up on his little uh, buggy. He has a Volkswagen powered buggy. He comes up. He spins. He spins a big donut. Spins a big donut and covers our forks up. Yeah. We had three sets of forks, all completely taken apart on on these tiles. On the bench, yeah. And on the back of the El Camino. Yeah, <laughs> on the back of the El Camino. And he covers them with dirt. And I go, Jesus, Mary and Joseph H. Christ, yeah. on a public sick. What are you? doing oh don't worry about it so well, I finally we finally get them all cleaned up again we put the one set of forks back on the mako i take the mako a 450 mako and i turn around and i go boom 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 wow dump the clutch and spin and throw a bunch of rocks and sand and dirt on Roland Hines who's sitting in his buggy <laughs> and just covered him from head to foot with, with dust and dirt and rocks and stuff. Yeah. And uh, it, it went downhill from there. Yeah. It went completely downhill from there. <laughs> that was the beginning of the end. Yeah, that was the beginning of the end. 
so that was well speaking from a uh, from a test product point of view what what did get you in the most trouble you know, um, was it a chain loop thing, or was there something well, else? Probably the uh, Yamaha, in 1974, mm-hmm. the, the Yamaha SC500 came out, 73 or 74. Yeah. Remember, remember the Yamaha SC500? It was a 500 two-stroke single. I don't remember that, uh, Super Hungry. I was uh, born in 73, so. Uh, okay. Well, this this bike, uh, was, was it answers the question, what do, what did we get <laughs> when we really, really had to have an ill-handling bike that didn't last? Long that uh. blew up with regularity and seas and rattled, uh, and that was the SC500. <laughs> so uh, we got it for a test, and I took it out as usual for an hour and a half uh, desert race, the European yeah. scrambles. So I took it out, and I seized like six times. I mean, I'm just going, going through the smoke bombs, just going, rrr, rrr, boom, seize. I let it cool down, started up again, mm-hmm. took it off, seize. It, it was a vicious handling motorcycle. <laughs> it, it, was, it was horrible, and I, I, I gave it a, a really bad test write up, and the test write up was. Like uh, it's gray and black, so is a turkey. <laughs> and Jesus Christ, you would have think you would think that Yamaha was going to have a coronary. They yeah, yeah, yeah. showed up at the office with about four or five vice presidents, and they were screaming and yelling, "How dare you? What are you a national champion? Are you a professional rider?" I said, "No, I'm yeah. just a grunt. I'm just a normal Sunday grunt." He said, "Well, how do you dare do this?" I said, "Who do you think you sell this motorcycle to? You don't sell this motorcycle to a national champion." Yeah. You sell it to people like me and my friends. And this bike's a piece of shit. Yeah. And uh, they they told me all kind of names. They canceled all the advertising until they came with a, a brand new bike, a uh, new Monoshock, and we got a great write up on that. And then they loved us again. Yeah, yeah, that's how it works, right? Yeah, yeah. And then the same thing happened. And uh, oh gosh, it must have been uh, seventy something, seventy nine, eighty. We did a test on the uh, Honda X, uh, SL one seventy five, and uh, one of it was the slowest, most pathetic bike I've ever ridden in my life. One of the things uh, that I said in the, in the test was this: I said Honda makes no claims for this uh, for this motorcycle, which we think is extremely accurate. <laughs> so David Swift was going to take. He said, "Well, Rick, he said, what am I going to do for photos of this bike?" He said, "It's a real pig." I said, "Well, take a picture with a pig." He goes, "Oh, I know somebody that has a, a, an animal farm out in Newhall for the movies." Uh-huh. So he goes he goes out to this animal farm where they have all kinds of giraffes and lions and bullshit like that. Yeah, and he, they had this pig out there named Dolly the Wonder Pig. <laughs> it's about a 300-pound white pig that's yeah. in a whole lot of commercials and movies uh-huh. and stuff like that. And we put this Honda in the pen right next to this pig. This pig comes over and goes and looks at this bike. And so uh, David Swift took a picture of it and we put a picture of Oink coming out of the exhaust pipe of the Honda. Oh, jeez. And we ran it as our lead photo for the story. Right. And Honda went ballistic. <laughs> There I was back in the office again. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, seriously, with uh, vice presidents and lawyers, and, uh, and we 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 were just terrible. We were we were horrible. Yeah. And then then the, uh, a real good Elsinore came out. We talked about that and we right. good, and they loved us too. And they loved you again. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, they, but they, they they canceled like two hundred thousand dollars worth of advertising. You know, they they yanked that stuff and gold and said, Oh my God, 
what are we going to do? I said, be quiet. We're making so much money on the magazines alone. See, nowadays, a magazine, if it doesn't make money advertising, it doesn't make it. Right. All right? All right. In, in those days, back then, we were selling magazines for 75 cents a copy. Man, we were making money just off the magazine. Right, and right. Advertising yeah. was gravy. Yeah, nowadays you see the magazines, but the subscriptions are so cheap. They're just dirt cheap, you know? Yeah, that's it, what they call give, giveaway subs. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's surprising. It's yeah, all magazines, you, look, you know. But if you look at the cover price on a magazine, the cover price is like five bucks. Right, right. It's it's amazing. Absolutely so, amazing. Uh, what made you leave Dirt Bike in uh, the fall of '85? Roland Hines and I just kept butting heads real bad. <laughs> yeah. And uh, one of the things we used to do, and uh, this this was one of the things that really drove me nuts. Um, the guy got uh, a brand new van. Roland got a brand new van, and he he said uh, he went to a gas station and he got brand new tires and wheels for it. He got these really bitching tires and wheels for this brand new van. And he stopped by a gas station to get a tank of gas. And how many, how much they wanted to change it? They wanted ten bucks a tire to put it on there. He says. I went to a gas station, you know, and they wanted $40 to put these tires on my car, on my van. That's mm -hmm. terrible. Well, at the time, uh, I was racing a truck. I also had a truck in the Baja 1000 I was yeah. racing. And a uh, Bronco. So I said, well, Roland, let's bring it over to my house. I said, I got a big jack over there. And I said, bring your thing over. And I said, I'll pop it up in the air and I'll put the tires on it for you. It'll right. take me you know, 15 minutes for me. He said, okay. So he shows up in my place in Granada Hills. <clears throat> I take the huge uh, floor jack out and I get the thing up in the air. It's a 100-degree day, 110-degree day in typical, typical L.A. Yeah. And I change all four tires and I put the other tires in the back of the van. He pulls out of my uh, my lot. He doesn't even say thank you. <laughs> he doesn't even say yeah. thank you. Yeah. So um, you're like, wow, that's a lot of work. He doesn't. Even, he doesn't even say thank you. Well, I saw him in the hallway and I called him a prick. <laughs> and uh, we just it just went that, down over there. That was it. That was uh, that was anyway, the end. Then Paul Clipper left, my right hand man. Paul, mm -hmm. oh, 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 check this out. So he took Webb. Webb, with me and Clipper and Webb, we had a really good magazine. All three of us working on. It. And Webb was a good double A enduro writer. Mm -hmm. And uh, what got me into enduros, and I, I, I wrote a few enduros, but I was never any really, really good. And I got to the point where I was actually riding the enduros fairly, fairly good, mm -hmm. because we'd, we'd ride on the same minute with Webb, and he was an excellent timekeeper. Right. And uh, I was riding, you know, like PE 175s and IT 175s, good stuff like that. Yeah. And we had a real good time. Me and Clipper and Webb would ride enduros and motocross and desert race. We had a real good time. Then he took Webb off of me, a dirt bike, and put him in charge of dirt wheels. Oh, yeah. Now, uh, Webb couldn't couldn't stand a four-wheeler. Yeah. He couldn't, He, uh, you know, as yeah. far as I'm concerned, four-wheelers are, well, I'll tell you about four-wheelers in a minute. <laughs> but uh, he put he put Webb in charge of dirt wheels. Yeah. He said, you're never going to have a chance to be in charge of dirt bike. You want to be your own magazine, you're going to put you in charge of dirt wheels. It's all yours, yeah. So, yeah, so it leaves me and Clipper. So Clipper got so pissed off at Roland, he had his own run as a Roland, that he said, Rick, he says, I got to leave. I, I got to go. I can't take it anymore. I said, I can understand. Man. Yeah. So he, he took he took off and went to work for KTM. Uh-huh. And uh, so he says, I'll give you three months. 
uh, about a month later, I'm sitting in my office one day, and Ketchup Cox walked in. I don't know if you know who he is. I, I just know the name. And actually, he sent me an email a little while ago because I I broke down every issue of Super Motocross from 1983, and mm-hmm. uh, just for my own website for fun. And uh, he wrote me it out of the blue. I, don't, I have no idea. I said, uh, wow, thanks. So anyway, that's all I know. So. Well, he's a nice guy, but he is the latest guy uh, as far as ever making a deadline. He always missed deadlines. I refuse to have anything to do with him. He hasn't worked for me. He always worked for he worked for Dirt Wheels and did whatever, and uh, he worked for Motocross Action for a while. And uh, he's a nice guy, but just hopelessly incompetent as far as getting stuff done properly and on time. <laughs> <clears throat> so here he walks into my office. He sat down. He put his feet up on, on Paul Clipper's desk. He says, "Is he super hunky?" How you doing? I said, yeah. What can I do for you, Ketchup? He says, I'm your new right-hand man. I said, oh, you Wasn't he are? Jody's buddy from back in the day from Texas? Yeah. yeah. He worked with, he worked, with, worked with Jody for a while. And then Jody, you know, we all like Ketchup. Ketchup was a good old boy. But Ketchup, <clears throat> man, I don't think he could fall out of a building and hit the ground on time. <laughs> I mean, seriously. Yeah. No shit. He's a uh, wonderful guy. I, lo- I love him dearly, but in- completely incompetent. So, okay. Anyway, so he shows up. So he, yeah. so he shows up, he puts his seat up on Clipper's desk, Clipper's ex-desk. He says, I'm your new right-hand man. I said, oh, uh, really? How did this happen? He said, well, he says, I went in and talked to Roland Hines, and he says, uh, <clears throat> he says, uh, he wants me to work with you. He says, I had some great ideas, and I talked to Roland at great lengths. I said, oh, you did, did you? He says, and he says, and what, he says what I want to do is I want to come here, <clears throat> and I got permission from Roland to incorporate my ideas into Dirt Bike. We can make it grow again. I said, okay, <laughs> what are your what are your ideas? Yeah. Get to, get to, tell me your ideas. He said, well, he said, I looked through all the issues of Dirt Bike, all the way back to 71. I said, yes. He said, in all those issues of Dirt Bike, you never had one story on flat track racing. <laughs> I said, okay. Yeah. He said, and also, you never had one story on ice racing. I said, okay. He said, therefore, he said, we're missing the whole crowd. We're, what we're going to do then, I talked to Roland. He said, it's okay. He says, he says you're, you're, you're supposed to go along with it. We're going to have a couple stories every month on flat track racing and ice racing in the magazine. That's what we're going to do. We're going to get that whole crowd of people. I, I said, Ketchup, before I kill you, and they take me away and put me in jail for like 40 years for killing someone, yeah. uh, I want you to realize in all the years that I was editor of Dirt Bike Magazine, I got thousands and thousands and thousands of letters. Mm-hmm. Never once in all those letters that I ever got did I ever get anyone requesting anything on dirt on flat track racing, ever. <laughs> <clears throat> and not, not only did I not get a letter on ice racing, I never even dreamed about ice racing. <clears throat> I said, if you ever went to Ascot and it's heyday and you went in the parking lot of Ascot, all you saw in the, in the parking lot was gold wings, Harley 74 dressers and stuff like that. These people are not the guys that go out on a, on a weekend and ride a YZ250 or, or whatever. They just don't do it. I said, that's a whole different crowd. It's not even the dirt bike crowd. You can't talk to them. He said, no, no, we're going to do it. I said, okay, here's the deal. I said, Ketchup, you better get on down the hallway. I said, you better get out of my sight because if you're within my sight, within within the next two minutes, I'm going to go to jail. There's no question about it. <laughs> and uh, so I got this message from uh, Roland Hines that I was supposed to listen to Ketchup, and I sent uh, my letter of resignation in uh, an hour later. Really? That was it. I, wow. And I, I called Clipper up, and Clipper Clip 
Shepard just laughed his ass off. He said, yeah, I figured it'd take you three months. It took you one month exactly, and you're gone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what did you do after uh, after Dirt Bike? Well, I, uh, I, I had been making some phone calls. I talked to uh, George Elliott down at uh, uh, Argus Publications. He used to do pop cycling. Uh-huh. And I said, well, why don't we revive, revive pop cycling? He said, no, come on down. I want to talk to you. And I went down and talked to him. And uh, Off-Road Magazine had just lost their editor named Mike Parrish. Mm-hmm. And he went to Ford as a PR guy at Ford. And they needed somebody to run Off-Road Magazine. Well, Off-Road Magazine was all, all about trucks and whatever, 4x4s. Four right. And I didn't. I didn't know a four by four from from anything. I, yeah. I I I couldn't tell a Bronco from a Blazer. If you, well, you, know. you had a Bronco in Baja, but yeah, well, I had the Bronco shortly shortly thereafter. Yeah, yeah, shortly oh, thereafter. okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah time period was off. So anyway, I took over Off Road Magazine, and uh, sure enough, man, I started racing. I started racing a Trooper uh, in '86. Mm-hmm. I ran a Baja 1000, one class 14, in a Zuzu Trooper. Yeah, and uh, trooper. you know the amazing, Jeez. yeah, the, the amazing thing was. We did a story on the Isuzu racing team. It was uh, Mike Leone, the guy on Mike Skyrans, Jose uh, uh, Javier Tesnado, and Jose Luna. And we did a story on all three of those guys and the Isuzu racing team, which is three Isuzu trucks, uh, two pups, and the trooper. Mm-hmm. And uh, went out and did a uh, thing with them uh, in Riverside, California, at the track. The, the, the trucks were being built by K cars. And uh, so I made an arrangement with the guys that I was going to do the story on the these, these three guys in the Zuzu team, but I, I would like to be able to ride, drive one of the race trucks. And right. you know, okay. The fact that I was a, a motocrosser, an accomplished motocrosser, uh, you know, that sort of opened the door. That right. just wasn't some clown up yeah, the street. They, yeah, exactly. So they had about a seven-mile course out there they were taking lap times on. Well, I got in uh, in one of their pups, uh, Tiznado's pup, and within a couple of laps, I was turning faster lap times than they were. <laughs> and I'm not, not that I'm a great racer, but yeah. don't forget, a motorcycle Motor, rider, yeah, a motorcycle rider, motorcycle yeah. rider reads the terrain better than a guy who just drives trucks. Yeah. So uh, what I do, I'd go over a little rise with a couple of little bumps in, uh-huh. and make a little, make it, uh, make a double jump out of a small double jump out. I'd only go 15 feet through the air, right. but those guys would, would hit, go bump, bump, hit both bumps, and you know, t- take taking a corner wide and driving across a corner, stuff like that, yeah. where they wouldn't do it. Yeah. And uh, well, I was five or six seconds a lap faster than they were after after a few laps. And anyway, uh, in the Baja 500, uh, all three of the Zuzu trucks did terrible. And uh, I talked to the people who were doing their advertising, worked out a deal with them, and uh, got a sponsor, uh, uh, Ralph Lorenz Polo. Nice. And uh, did the Baja 1000 <clears throat> and made the truck in the Ralph Lorenz colors. Right. And we won class 14. It was really great. Sweet. I uh, raced that a few more races and uh, Mickey Thompson's races and stuff like that and sold it and built built the Bronco, a big oldie two, and had a great time with that. Had a wonderful time racing. It did, geez, like four years of Baja racing, mid 400, uh, uh, you know, Gold Coast, yep. San Felipe 250. It was, a, it was a very, very good 10 years. I learned an incredible amount. And just mm-hmm. an awesome amount. I learned more than I ever wanted to know. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah exactly. The, the amount of work required to race and maintain an off-road vehicle is just 
it's, it's, it's not to be believed. Yeah, yeah, not to yeah. Be believed. Always tinkering, always fixing, always trying to look for a better way. Yeah, uh, and uh, I, I was uh, very lucky in that because I had a magazine at my disposal, I was able to get good sponsor money. I get eighty-five, ninety thousand bucks a year sponsor money, and uh, but at the end of the year, I look at my checking account, the checking account to be like eight hundred bucks left in it. And I go, well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, they don't have what happened to all the money. Right, right. Um, you still keep in touch with Clipper and Webb? Webb's back at Dirt Bike, I think. Clipper yeah, has his well, own magazine on the in the Northeast there. Uh, yeah, Trail Rider. In fact, I write for, uh, I write, of all things now, would you believe it? I, I write a column for Trail Rider. Oh, do you? Okay, all right. <laughs> yeah, and uh, that's the Clipper and I go way, way back. Right. So we, we're, we're staying good, good touch, stay in touch with guys like Krauss, and we have a good, we have a good old uh, time. Mr. Know-it-all was good. He was funny. I always, oh, thought, that was, I always that. thought that was you, though. No, that was Vic Krause. From Sidewinder. I, I, I thought, from Sidewinder's Rockets. Sidewinder's Rockets, yeah. yeah, yeah. In fact, I thought the name up. We were coming back to the Cincinnati trade show in Vic Krause's motorhome, and there was about a foot of snow on the highway and blue ice, mm-hmm. and we're, we're coming back to his motorhome just completely all over the all. We thought we were going to die. So yeah. the only thing, we'd, only thing we could do, we stopped and got a case of beer and a couple of buckets of chicken. <laughs> Why we, not, we proceeded, right? Yeah. yeah, we proceeded to drive down the highway. Uh, drinking beer and eating chicken, and uh, that's what we came up with, Mr. Know-It-All, and that's what I came up with the name and came up with the concept. Uh-huh. You know, something completely arrogant, completely yeah. snotty, and that's uh, that's how it came out. Um, it worked out really, really good. What's your What's your take on dirt bike today? Uh, dirt bike today is, well, let me put it to you this way. Yeah. A few months ago, I picked up a copy of Third Bike. I get, I get comp for a whole lot of magazines, okay? I get my mailbox stuff with magazines. I picked up, picked up a copy of Dirt Bike, and there on the cover, it said, exclusive 40 pages of hot new products. On the cover, on the left-hand side, which you're supposed to, that's where you're supposed to put your type because that's how they stack magazines, mm-hmm. it says 40 pages of hot new products. And I, I sat there, and I just slumped to, to a chair. <laughs> slumped to a chair. Because if one of my editors would have... We're going to put 40 pages of an editorial fellatio yeah. on the cover. I would, have, I would have thrown him out of the office. He would have left skid marks on the way out. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that, that's, that's what would have happened. Yeah. I mean... I couldn't not believe, and I looked inside, and there indeed was 40 pages of nothing but strokes on all these baloney products. I mean, $900 titanium mufflers for a CR450. Give me a goddamn break. Excuse my language, but give me a goddamn break. You spend 8000 bucks on a, on a bike, and they want you to spend another 900 bucks on a titanium muffler that saves, oh, 1.2 pounds. Ooh, 1.2 <laughs> pounds. That's going to really improve my lap times a great deal. Yeah. I just could not believe it. I just absolutely yeah. couldn't believe it. Wow. And uh, I, I looked at that, and I, I just shook my head, and I said, what has happened to this publication? Right. Yeah, I, I don't know either, to be honest. <laughs> it's been a while since I read Dirt Bike, which is amazing, because it was once a must-read, you know? Yeah, it was a lot of fun. <clears throat> you could you could, you could find stuff in there that would, would piss you off. Mm-hmm. You could find stuff in there you could agree with, uh, but you could, you could all, always find the truth. You could find what bikes really put on horsepower, what they really weighed. But let me give you an example about today. One of my pet peeves, one of my really pet peeves are the new bikes. Mm-hmm. Okay, now, this 
February, the end of this February, I'm going to be 70, okay? Yeah. And I just recovered from a, a radiation treatment to recover yeah, I was gonna, from the process. I was going to ask how, you, how you're doing. How's your health holding up? Because there was a scare uh, a while I'm, back. I'm doing okay. <clears throat> I dropped uh, 20, 27 pounds. I've been uh, run, training, and I had a knee replacement and the whole thing. And I'm training again. I'm down at uh, 215, 214, and I'm riding again, and I'm going to start racing vintage in the over 70 class. Oh, cool. In the February. Right on. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And I'm going out and riding again, and, man, I'm slow. <laughs> I'm so slow. It's the thing. But, you know, you got to start somewhere. So I, got, I go out with my buddy, uh, Tim, and we go out and we uh, ride. we got a plenty, plenty of land here in Arizona. It's just beautiful. Uh, anywhere you go, it's just, you can go riding. Right. As long as you use, as long as you use your head. <laughs> anyway. So we went out riding, and one of the, one of his friends uh, has a uh, 2009 450 Kawasaki, and he went with us. Right. And uh, the guy, I let the guy ride my 490 Mako. Oh, you still got and one, huh? Is I got an 83 490. Now, the 81 490 is considered by many to be the greatest motorcycle yes. ever made. Yes. But the 83 490, most people don't realize it because it was tested so rarely that that was, that, that was in the death knolls of Mako. The 83 490 was actually about uh, eight horsepower more than the 81 490. It was absolutely brutal. It was so fast, it was violent. Uh-huh. It, it absolutely, it, 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 it takes your breath away. It weighs 226, and it's so so much horsepower, you can't believe it. For example, the 81 490 was a straight piston port. The 83 had a reed valve in it. It didn't have a primary chamber. It had a very small bottom end yeah. and a huge fins and the whole thing. It's so fast, it's scary. This guy rode my, four, my 490, and he, he just shook his head. And I rode his 450, which is a typical four-stroke 450. And it was pretty fast and the whole thing. Right. But but it wasn't as fast as my 490. And I'm going to myself, what in the hell is wrong with the way motorcycles are today? This guy spent about 8000 bucks by the time uh, tax title and, you know, he cleared the dealer's door. And you know what's going to cost this guy to rebuild his 490? His 450, his rather. 450, his, yeah. four, his 450 Kawasaki. Guess what it's going to cost him? Uh, quite a bit. <laughs> okay. Yeah, how, how about we we re, really, really tell you what quite a bit is? Okay. In the Honda manual, in the, for the 450 Honda, it says 15 hours, you're ready for a rebuild. And if you're a pro, yeah. pro or an expert, in 30 hours for normal riding. That's what it says in the manual. Mm-hmm. Now, if you rebuild it, you're going to have to rebuild not not just the head, the top end, but you're going to have to do the rod and the whole thing. It does not include the clutch to the gearbox. Right. The average cost, about 3200 bucks. Wow. Yeah. So imagine if you just go riding with your buddies. Yeah. And you've got a 450 whatever. Yeah, it could be anything. They're all about 30 hours, I'm sure. You know, That's right. For an average guy, yeah. You're probably you're going to get more time out of a KTM. KTMs do not turn 13,500 RPM like the rest of them do. Mm-hmm. Did you know that? The KTMs are more reliable just because they they don't explore the outer limits of piston speed. And uh, that it's it's how can a guy who goes riding, riding oh. 
a couple times a month all year long. Mm-hmm. Afford three three rebuilds during a year out of an eight thousand dollar bike already. Yeah, on top, of, you, on top of the bike price, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and, and then they still want you to put eight hundred dollar mufflers and titanium head pipes and two hundred for this, four hundred for that. You know, I, I'm sorry, they have taken all the fun out on my four ninety Mako. <clears throat> I'll put rings in at the end of a year just because I feel guilty. <laughs> yeah. Seriously. You're like I should and, do something to this thing. Yeah, I should do something. I'll, I'll be nice to it. I'll give it a set of rings. Right. Uh, and a set of rings is going to cost me 40 bucks. Yeah. All right. Gaskets. And, <laughs> and gaskets. That's it. Yeah. Um, so I take it you're not. It must be weird, though, for a guy that's been around as long as you to see four strokes being the only machine of choice, two strokes coming over and them being the machine of choice, and now it's back full circle again, right? Because, yeah. I mean, it must be kind of strange a little bit. Well, it's it's sad and it's sick. It shows you the total blithering incompetence of the AMA. The, the AMA, uh, by and large, with their stupid rules, making 125s run against 254 strokes and so forth, created that problem right. in their own. Well, you ride, yeah, if they, you had they had a... Go ahead. If you, if you had 252 strokes running against 254 strokes, there wouldn't, there wouldn't be a two-stroke in the top 15. A four stroke. There wouldn't be a four stroke. Four fifteen. Right. Four stroke right. fifteen. And if you took uh, something like a four ninety Mako and made it real narrow and real modern and put disc brakes front and rear and two hundred six pounds ready to go uh-huh. uh, and it did sixty two horsepower, it would just crap all over a four fifty anything. Yeah. With fuel injection and maps and computers, <laughs> good Christ. Yeah. I mean, give me a get, give me a flying well, break. Uh, I, I was. They, a, they have, They've ruined the sport. They have ruined, absolutely ruined the sport, and taken it completely out of the 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 the, 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 the genre of fun. Right. And now you have nothing but a bunch of little punk kids with rings in their ears and tattoos in their neck and their baseball caps on sideways and little subtle little pictures in their ads and, and their multicolored riding gear, green bikes and in red gear and orange helmets with flames and lightning bolts. It looks like a Western <laughs> auto blew up. I swear to God, I I really it, it's very sad. That's why I love vintage racing so much. Right. I just love it. You go out to the racetrack, and guess what? There's no guys walking around with boom boxes. There's no guys walking around with bolts in their noses and earrings and stuff like that. Yeah. And you know the only tattoos you see are the guy that says US USMC on his sleeve or something like that. That's about all you see. But it, it, this is normal people. Yeah. My brother's all into vintage racing right now. Has himself two nineteen eighty one. YZs and just loves it, loves it. Um, my comeback to you would be, and I'm not saying I'm not I'm disagreeing with you. My comeback to you would be that you could make an argument that when the first, when the four strokes came out, the not just the kids but the vet riders embraced them and bought them because they're easy, they're lazy, they're easy to ride. They make you a lazy rider. You can clear anything you want at your local track. Just sit down, leave it in third. You know, um, the public almost kind of spoke with their pocketbook, and now they're realizing. That oops, maybe we shouldn't have because early on Yamaha couldn't keep those things in stock. Okay, let me, let me ask a question. Sure. Do you go to the races on Sunday? Yes. Well, they're now on Saturdays, but yeah. On Saturdays or Sundays, whenever yeah. you go. <clears throat> When's the last time you saw a four or five year old four stroke out there competing? Um, 
Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I go to the pro stuff, so I mean, you never see. But they're just not there. Yeah, because because a four or five year old four stroke is worth uh, right. fifteen hundred bucks, and it costs two three thousand to rebuild it. Yeah, you see on Craigslist all the time because I'm looking for an older bike right now, an older by yep. I mean mid eighties, but you see all the time on Craigslist a blown yep. up CRF four fifty. That's right. In fact, one of <clears throat> one of the biggest. Excuse me, a second. <clears throat> Sorry there. One of the one of the really really cool things you can do nowadays. This is really really cool. Mm -hmm. Is take one of the new four strokes that is absolutely blown up that you cannot afford to fix, like a 2004 yeah. KX YZ. They're all the same. In fact, if you painted a YZ green and you painted a, a CR yellow and you painted an <laughs> RM blue, you couldn't tell one from the other. No, it's tough. It's you, tough. You couldn't really tell one from the other. You absolutely could not. I mean. My God, well, I can I remember looking at a Boltaco. A Boltaco looked like a bull. Right. A Mako looked like a Mako. A CZ looked like a CZ. Not, it's, it's, like, it's like the open the modern cars of today. Anyway, I'm digressing, but you take yeah. uh, uh, a chassis, a perfectly good chassis, <clears throat> really bitching wheels, a good frame, uh, good brakes, good suspension, and there's a blown-up motor in that is such a piece of crap that you can't afford to fix it. All right, you take that thing and take the motor out and use it as a doorstop in your garage or sell whatever few parts you can get on eBay. Yeah. And then you put your CR500, your YZ250, or whatever kind of motor you want, two-stroke motor, yeah. in there. Yeah. In there, and you've got, you've got a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful motorcycle. Do you, uh, do you see a day when, when the two-strokes come back? What do you, what's your um, thoughts on that? I see a day somehow in the, when the industry has enough enough common sense to make another version of the DT1. Mm -hmm. the, the DT1, uh, I don't know if you, you, you're, you were born in uh, 73. Yeah, 73, but I do know the history of the DT1. Yeah, very important uh, motorcycle. Well, I'll tell you why it was important. Uh, I was in a Dirt Dares Motorcycle Club way back then. And guys, had, we had the usual array of, of crap that we rode. I mean, we had uh, oh, 441 Victors and Triumphs and Greaves and all kinds of crap, all right, which we all rode around. Most of the time, we came back to the end of a tow rope. <clears throat> when the DT1 came out, it was 749 bucks. And you could let it sit in your garage for two months. It was starting the first or second kick. And it was reliable. Mm -hmm. It was dead simple. It was cheap to work on. It was fun to ride. And it handled uh, not too great. But you can make it work a little better by putting a little, little odds and ends in it. Right. But you had a, a sensible bike at a reasonable price. And it was fun. And most guys don't race. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you. If you stand along, where do you live at? In L.A.? I live in Vegas. Okay. In LA if you stay along highway uh five yep. going out of going out of LA north. Going like a magic mountain way, going north, yeah. You got it. And you stay along the highway right right about before dawn, you see a bunch of guys going out there with their trucks and trailers. And on the on the trucks and trailers you're gonna see all kinds of bikes heading out to go have fun. Right. right? And you look at all the bikes that are going out there, and for every bike you see with a number plate on, the guy's going to the races. I mean, a real number plate. A real number plate. Right. Where a guy's going to the races somewhere, you see a hundred, five or six or seven or ten or twelve-year-old ITs or YZs or God knows what else 
piece of crap XRs, <laughs> and they're going out to have fun with their buddies, right? Because they can they can afford to do it and they can have fun. I agree with that. that yeah, that's yep. that's what the real world is, and nobody is paying attention to these guys. Nobody, no one. For I mean, look, the, the whole bottom line is this. The real bottom line is this. You you have a magazine. Uh, your magazine is ABC Motocross Magazine, okay? Right. And you do a test on a new Kawasaki 450, mm-hmm. all right? If you don't have a Kawasaki 450, you don't care. You, you'll look at it with first re-examination, mm-hmm. and that's, that's all you're going to do. If you've got a, an RM uh, 454-stroke, you, you really can care less. You might, you might look at it with curiosity, but you're not about to buy it. You can't afford to. They're ignoring the fact that for every new bike sold, there's a thousand, a thousand old bikes out there that people put gas in and go riding. They buy handlebars for it. They right. buy chains, rockets. They buy grips. They buy filters. They buy all the things that you need. The guys like Works for Performance Company are still in business selling shocks yeah. because they make shocks for bikes that people ignore. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> we are seeing a complete complete ignorance on the part of most magazines, most magazines of that tremendous, tremendous market out there that exists. We are seeing that. Right, right. Yeah, no, uh, like I said, my brother's into it now, so he's found all these websites and stores that specialize in vintage stuff and YZ stuff, and he's all about it now, you know, and it's a you whole underground it. sort of industry going on. And, uh, you know, hopefully, yeah, one day it comes. I mean, I, I admire KTM and Yamaha. They're sticking to the two-strokes. They're producing new models every year, Some minor updates, but the bikes are pretty good as it are, so as it is. So uh, I admire those two companies for, for keeping it up, right? And the nice thing is, you can ride all year long your Yamaha 250 two-stroke all year long, yeah. and nothing's going to go. Nothing's going wrong with it. Nothing's going wrong. You maybe put chains, sprockets, tires. That's yeah. about it. Yeah. You know? and, and actually, even four-strokes eat chains and sprockets like it's no one's business. So that's another part that's uh, more money. You know, is the maintenance of a four-stroke. So. Well, you you call that? You yeah. absolutely call that. Um, well, right now in my garage, <clears throat> I have uh, my uh, 83 uh, 490 Mako. Yeah. I have a CRF 230 uh, four-stroke yep. electric start, and I've got upside-down forks on it, good shocks. I've made a project bike yeah, out of it. Yeah, you t- fiddled around with it. And it works really, really good. It has about the same kind of horsepower, same kind of pull as a 350 XR. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's electric start, and with uh, my, my t- titanium knee it, uh, I walk with. <laughs> I also have I have a TT 230 Yamaha also, electric start. I keep that in the garage, a pair of those. And I also have it in my garage. Garage, uh, uh, absolutely flawless, flawless. You could eat off of it. 1976 Mako Grand Prix AW400. I don't know what that is, but yeah. It, it's got the aluminum tank, hot uh-huh. tank. Yeah. It's the eat off wild replica. Okay. And uh, I got that sitting in my garage, and it's it's never even been started. I, I feel really embarrassed about it. Every, but I look at it and I go, mm, nope, not today. Let that, let that baby sit. <laughs> it's like it's like having a 57 Chevy convertible in your garage. Right, right. Oh, that's not, yeah, that sounds pretty cool. Um, what about pro racing? You know, my job is uh, a journalist covering, uh, I don't use the word journalist lightly, but uh, covering uh, the supercrosses and nationals. I go to every one of them and uh, report back to uh, people on what happened, who did what. How much do you follow today's racing? 
Well, I, I, I look at Supercross, but by and large, it bores me to tears. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, the, the, outdoor, the outdoor motocross, I, I find it uh, quite interesting. I still look at that. Yeah. And I, I find uh, when they went on a course like Unadilla or Redbud or something, that, that, to me, that's, that's, that's real racing. Yeah. So supercross racing, excuse me, jump, 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 hoop de doo jump, 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 hoop de doo jump, 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 hoop de doo Give me a, give me a flaming break. Uh-huh. I mean, what could be more boring in the world than watch a guy jump? If you jump too far, you get hurt. If you don't jump far enough, you get hurt. <laughs> yeah, it pretty much sums it up. <laughs> Gee, Jesus yeah. Christ. The only place that the guy can pass is the end of a long hoop to do section. You leave on a little bit long the other guy, and you pass him. You maybe pull a half a second on that guy. That's, yeah. that's, that's it. That's James Stewart especially. And, of course, uh, we'll see what happens to James Stewart this weekend. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, definitely. He uh, he hit the ground. He, he hit the ground hard. Um, well, but like 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 he would say when he hit the ground, James, how are you feeling? Well, you know, I don't feel too good, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we covered that. You know, you know, you know, uh, you know. Hey, what about when you when you were the editor uh, of Dirt Bike or any of the magazine or the other magazine? Did you ha- how was your relationship with the pro guys? I mean, did you have to write critical things sometimes and have them come down on you? I mean, I got, I, I got along great with the guys. I used, in fact, uh, one of the things they used to do was they used to take the uh, European writers, especially the Europeans. They wanted to go out in the California desert. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would come over to the place and visit uh, Aki Janssen, Adolf Wild, Garrett Walsing, guys like that. And they'd say, we wanted to see the desert because, you know, if they're from Germany or yeah. Belgium or something like that, there is no open land over there. No. There's nothing. I mean, if you don't know a farmer where you can use a little bit of his land to go riding on or a private track, you don't ride. You just don't go out in the woods somewhere and just go ride your motorcycle. Yeah. Because if you do, you will be in jail that, that night post-haste. Yeah. So they could not believe that we still had the open desert out there. So I would take the guys out to the desert all the time. And uh, they, they they thought it was absolutely fantastic. They had more fun. Uh, give an example. One time we had uh, 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 Adolf Weil, uh, Garrett Wolsink, Woody Bauer, a couple other guys, uh, three three top German writers. Like for, they were here for the Trans Ams or Trans Ams? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and they came in town for the USGP in Carlsbad. Okay. And uh, they came about a week early, and they said, hey, we want to go to the desert. I said, okay. So they wanted to take the three weekends with them, too. So I took a couple of my guys, and I took a whole uh, – we all showed up in my house. I had a whole garage full of test bikes. So everybody grabbed a test bike, all right? Yeah. Nobody wanted nobody – wanted, you, don't, you don't want to take your personal uh, factory yeah. mako right. go try riding in the desert. So we all grabbed bikes. So all the guys grabbed the 500s and 250s, and then we had all we had left were 125s. And Carl Hines is one of the mechanics for the Mako guys. And I said, Carl, uh, the, there's 125 Suzuki RM125. What do you want? He says, I don't ride no 125. I ride men's bike. 125 is <laughs> day for the pussies. I go, okay. All right. <laughs> what do you what do you want to ride? He says, uh, this uh, this I ride that. He points to this 350 Honda, and it was the one that had the headlights on two black low pipes. Yeah, like a, like was, an XL, kind of? It, it was like an XL 350. Yeah. And I said, whoa. I said, hey, you don't want to ride that, Carl. We're going out, <coughs> we're going out to the desert. There's hoop-de-doos and sand. 
because this thing weighs 325 pounds. And it's got a headlight and it's got mirrors and turn signals and it's got everything. He says, "Nah, I've got this I, Honda. They make a good bike. I, I, I ride this bike. This is this this is the bike I ride." Okay, so I had about an 18 foot trailer and we had a couple of vans and so I got all the guys together. And uh, we took we took off this big procession uh, to uh, the Ponderosa, which is about 16 miles of, uh, east of Palmdale, and one of my favorite riding areas. So we go out there, and Carl uh, he just has he just has a set of boots, and gloves, and goggles, and a helmet, and he's in a sh- just a shirt and pants. He wouldn't even put gear on. We're we're all putting our gear on, and Carl takes his Honda, and he takes some mirrors. There's two mirrors on. Now you got to picture this. I don't know if you ever saw these, the way Honda used to put their trail bikes to the mirrors on. They had about an inch, an inch and a half of thread stock sticking out of the bottom. Well, Carl pushed the mirrors forward so they wouldn't be in the way. Right. But there's a thread stock sticking out of the back. Well, he goes about 30 yards to the hoops. Uh, well, we're still loading up. We're still getting our gear on. Everybody's still goes, just chilling, right? <laughs> yeah, we're still we're still getting our goggles and yeah. all that stuff. And he goes boom, boom, hits the hoops, and bam, asshole over teacups. I mean, he, he does a big flaming endo. He comes back and his blood just pouring out of his neck. <laughs> and what what he did when he went over to bars, he caught his neck on that the threaded stock for the mirror, which was turned around the wrong way, and he just laced himself right across the neck and he just oh. cut his neck wide open. <laughs> well, whoa, holy smoke. So we, we uh, wrapped it up with uh, somebody had a towel. We wrapped it up real good. And one, one of my guys said, well, you guys keep riding. Go ahead. I'll take him into Palmdale Hospital. We'll get them all fixed up. You guys keep riding. Yeah. So, so we said, okay, yeah, well, we're here. We might as well do that. So <clears throat> me and uh, Adolf Weil and Walsink, and we, you know, we all rode around, had a good old time, took them to the hoops, and they just loved it. The fact that there was all this land, they could just ride and have fun. We just just had the most bitching time you can imagine. About three hours later, Carl Hines shows back up, 37 stitches in his neck. Jesus, really? 37 <laughs> stitches, yeah. He shows up. He goes, okay, now I ride. We go, oh, oh, oh. Hey, wait, you're all stitched up. Goes, ah, that's nothing. He takes a towel, wraps it around his neck, a clean towel. Then he puts duct tape around a towel until he's like the mummy. He can't even move his yeah, neck. Yeah. <laughs> he puts a helmet on, and he rides until dark. Damn. He rode until dark. Yeah, I yeah. mean, that. That is one tough guy. And he rode. Yeah. Oh, he took he took the mirrors off the hunt, by the way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, hey, was there one race that stood out for you all these years? Was there a was there a race that was just just unbelievable and amazing? Anything? That... Well, uh, actually, the, the place I was talking about where Pearl took uh, took the thirty seven stitches in his neck was called the Ponderosa, and uh, the Ponderosa was uh, it was nothing but just real deep gnarly hoops in uh, one lake bed. And uh, uh, it was it was a place that I went out and rode my first desert race ever yeah. ever in California, and I got I, I got everybody beat me. I mean, whole doctors were passing me, and just it was terrible. <clears throat> and uh, I, I started racing it, and me and my buddy Tom would go out there all the time. You'd go out there and race on Saturdays and Sundays two weekends a month and it was three 11 mile loops and they changed the loops a little bit by and large it was the same course all the time and uh, it was 33 miles all hoops well I got to the point where I was a dirt bike for a good long time and I had a 501 Mako that Adolf Wild had dialed in for me and I had so much horsepower I couldn't believe it and I won like 13 in a row overall at the Ponderosa oh yeah <laughs> 
Yeah, because there was no skill required. It was just hang on and hit it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a, sh- a sharp, a sharp turn was like north to east. Right. So there was no skill required. So I was real strong. I, that's how I got the name Super Hunky. You know, I was a weightlifter. Oh, was that it? Really? Oh, you didn't know that? No, I, I had no idea. I, I, it, should have been, it should have been one of my questions. It wasn't, though. Yeah, you want to hear that story? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was in a club called the Dirt Diggers Motorcycle Club. This is back in 68. Uh, and uh, after the club meeting was over, we used to go to a place called the Sneaky Fox. And we'd sit there and uh, drink beer and shuffleboard and eat uh, greasy French fries, 30-weight French fries and whatever. And uh, just, had, just had a good old time. And then we eventually find our way home. So we go over there one Wednesday after the meeting, and we walk to the Sneaky Fox. And a, and a bartender says, are you guys here for the, the arm wrestling contest? Mm-hmm. And uh, we, said, well, we didn't know there was one. He said, yeah. He says, I have an arm wrestling contest. And uh, I, I, I was an Olympic weightlifter. Uh, you know, I did over a 300-pound press and the whole thing. Uh-huh. And uh, uh-huh. so I said, yeah, okay, Rick, go ahead. So anyway, we started arm wrestling. There's all kind of people in there. And the entry fee was a pitcher of beer, which is four bucks. Yeah. And and I won 78 pitches of beer for the club. Nice. So, nice. yeah. So and everybody's, everybody's patting me on the back, and we got credit for 78 pitches of beer. Yeah. So we, we proceeded to start to put a dent in the 78 pitcher credit, and we're sitting there drinking beer. And just about the time we're about ready to go home, here comes a whole bunch of football players from the UCLA football team. Uh-huh. They walk in. Big guys. These are, these are really big tackles and stuff like that. But this is before weight, uh, the uh, football players lifted weights. Uh-huh. They were just big. Yeah. All right? Yeah. So they said, hey, we came here for the, weight of the uh, for the arm wrestling contest. And the bartender says, hey, it's, it's all over. Sorry, pal. That guy's the winner. <laughs> there's this guy's the winner. There's his trophy. I had a little six-inch tro- trophy. Right. And, and, uh, and 70, 70 some pitches of beer. He <laughs> says, uh, well, if you want to you want to go with him for some pitches, you go right ahead. Said, yeah, we'll go with him. So we started arm wrestling all these guys, and we started arm wrestling each other. Typical elimination thing. You know, two guys go, one guy loses, he's out. And it got down to two guys left, me and this big tackle. This yeah. guy was 300, 335 pounds. Well, I'm a 200-pounder, and I'm very strong. But, I mean, I'm, excuse me, 335, this guy's going to kick my ass, right? Right. But I looked at his arms, and they were sort of soft arms. You know, you, you don't see, you look at him, you can tell there's no muscles to the arms. Yeah. I mean, he had big legs and big back and yeah. all that stuff. <clears throat> so the bartender put his hand up, and he's getting ready to count down. And the minute he touched our hand to go, I just put everything I had in it, and I busted this guy's back of his hand open on a, on a table. Oh, man. And and uh, he's he's getting, he's getting ready to kick my ass. I said, "Hey, wait a minute! I said, I'll buy you a pitcher of beer. I'll buy you a pitcher of beer." He said, "Okay." So anyway, um, we won some more pitches of beer for us. And that and I came to the next meeting the, the Wednesday, and there was a white t-shirt, a white sweatshirt there, and uh, one of the guys had crude letter on it, super hunky. Oh, and okay. I, and that's how the nickname stuck. Yeah, yeah, that's no, that, that uh, that's the sweater we've seen in the. Uh... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. That, 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 that's, 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 it ain't exactly a glorious story, but that's how it happened, man. <laughs> Good story. But uh, another thing I wanted to ask you about on my list of questions is is in our sport, MXA and Jody Weisel in particular are uh, a little controversial at times. Jody's, uh, you know, kind of a calls it as he sees it guy. Um, not always at the races, but uh, some people don't like it. Uh, thoughts on MXA and, and Jody? I mean, you go probably go way back with the guy. 
Mm-hmm. Way back. In fact, uh, Joey and I get along better now <clears throat> than we did way back then. Yep. Because what, way back, way back in the early days, we'd find Jody in the dirt bike office stealing our photos. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. But we get along pretty good now. In fact, uh, uh, dirt bike um, has been passed by motocross action circulation. Yeah. Yeah. So, what do you think about MXA and and all that? Uh, actually, Jody. Um, I don't like the style that he writes. For example, every test that he writes, every test that he writes, he asks the same musical questions. Does it handle? Does it stop? Does it break? That gets pretty, pretty, pretty damn old after a while. Uh-huh. You know, uh, let's let's have a, let's have a normal lead. Let's have a a, a lead, an intro. Talk about the motorcycle. Talk about the way it handles. The the question thing gets really old. But by and large, he does exactly call the shots. Except he still is too easy on the Hondas. Yeah. For example, the 2009 Honda, mm-hmm. the 2009 Honda 450. Right. Everybody knows. Everybody who knows that bike will tell you that the bike has a hiccup. It has a big hesitation when it leaves a jump. Mm-hmm. And uh, nobody, nobody ever said that in the test. Right. No, nobody ever said it. They said it after the fact when the 2010s are about to come out again. Yeah, yeah. Not, not even Jody said it. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that uh, the early dirt bike would have been said. Right, right, right. Yeah, you would have. Uh, would have uh, brought that up. Interesting. Yeah, would have brought it up. It, it actually, <laughs> it made it. It made the it made the bike terrible. You go it grab you go grab a pig from a local farm. <laughs> you absolutely, no, you would have, think about that. Yeah, yeah. You're you're a 16 or 17 year old kid riding your 450 Honda, mm-hmm. and you're at the local Supercross track, and the bike hesitates when you're trying to make about a 45 foot double. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> you don't need that trip in the ambulance. Yeah. No. No doubt about it. Uh, another thing I want to touch on too was. Um, now, I'm not that familiar with it. I'm Canadian, so I never had to worry about this problem. But I, you, you've long been an advocate for uh, land use, and uh, your battles with the Sierra Club are, are legendary. Where are we at today, 2010, with our land battles? How, how, where are we at? What's going on? Uh, thoughts on it and all that? Well, number one, you can forget California. California, which was a hotbed of, uh, of having a place to ride, you can just forget about that. It's just about closed down. All the money, all the money that's been collected for the green stickies and all that stuff for the ride is <clears throat> you don't you don't have their land. You have less than one percent of the land that was available for riding on is available to you now. Really? You're, wow. you're now yeah. You're now crowded into uh, a few few small areas. Side on the road, uh, things. Things like that, a little place up at Gorman, odds and ends here and there, not much. Uh, and the, what they do is the people go out and look at this place, and all the people are compressed in this one tiny area, and they see tracks all over the place, and they go, Oh, what the hell is this? There's tracks all over. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? Is that, could that be because this is the only place we can ride? Yeah. Uh, it's it's gotten to the point. That's that's one of the reasons I left for Mexico. Was it really? You know, yeah, yeah. I want you to think about this a second. The United States is supposed to be the land of the free. I had left the United States to go to a country called Mexico, where I have a little freedom. Yeah. 
scary. It's scary. It's it, it scary. Uh, when you think about the fact that you can go virtually anywhere you want to go in Mexico if you use your head. If you strafe some guy's cows and he shoots you, well, <laughs> yeah. tough. All right, you, you deserve it. Did you, well, hey, Mexico is a little bit of a scary place, though, that way, right? A little frontier justice. <laughs> um, actually, by and large, if you get if you stay away from the borders, yeah. if you don't if you don't go to Nogales or Tijuana or anything like that, you're inland uh, a bit. If you're down, uh, it's okay. It's, yeah. it's a good place. You're all right. As long the board, all the border cities. In fact, most countries in the world, and I've been all around the world. Most countries in the world, most border cities are are pure trash. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. So we're we're still battling it, huh? We're still. But we, no, we, nobody nobody's battling the AMA. <clears throat> I'll give you one, one example. Uh, when Lewis McKay and I had the uh, Sahara Club, yeah. we, 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 well, we picked the name Sahara Club as the, the, the name that would piss off the Sierra Club the most. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that, that they sued us like you can't believe, and we won. Yeah. <clears throat> but uh, when we decided <clears throat> that uh, that, was, that was the end of the, the Sahara Club, uh, I had uh, what I had to do, and Lewis moved to Colorado. Mm-hmm. We had all these great pictures, all these great photos, and all this great information, tons of stuff, and we offered it to the AMA. We offered it to the AMA for free in their, their so-called battle against the uh, the, uh, the land use people. Yeah. <clears throat> and they said, no, we don't want it. We said, well, we just want to give it to you. We don't we don't want any money for it. We don't want anything. Yeah. No, we can't we can't accept any, anything from you guys. Well, why is that? Because you people are radical, and if we found out that you did it, uh, we would... Uh, we would never hear the end of it. Uh, I said. I said. Wait a minute. We're 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 actually on your side. Yeah. yeah. We're for you. We want to give you something for free. Yeah. And they said, No, no, no. Let me let me tell you something that most people don't know about. This is something that was not in my book. Okay. Mm-hmm. The first time we went to federal court, <clears throat> Lewis McKay and I were both served about three inch thick pieces of paper. Uh, with all kind of criminal charges on us, they wanted huge fines. They wanted us to go to jail, and for conspiracy and everything else. One of the things that one of the things that uh, that uh, you don't you don't realize, <clears throat> if you rob a bank, let's say the penalty for robbing a bank is seven years. Yeah. All right. If you rob a bank, that's your penalty if you get caught. Yeah. If you conspire to rob a bank with someone else, that's conspiracy, and it's automatically double the double really? sentence. Really? Huh. I yeah. Know that. Okay. So. What they did, all the, all, all the things that uh, they, the charges they gave us were all for conspiracy. Neil Lewis conspired to break all these laws, so the fines and the sentences would be double. Right. Oh, uh-huh. okay. Okay. <clears throat> so, anyway, so we decided, well, we had, we had to go to federal court. Well, we... Uh, we, me and Louis McKay, the Phantom Duck of the, des- yep. of the Desert, yep. we put our houses on the line to get the money for a lawyer. W- one time we were $300,000 in a hole between the, the two of us. Yep. Yeah. And if, well, luckily, I was the editor of a magazine and I was able to raise the money, you know, right. and uh, through the magazine. But <clears throat> here's what happened. We, we go to federal court for the first time. And me and Lewis walk in with our attorney. 
and there is 13 federal attorneys <laughs> and 100, 118 witnesses. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> and I just about crapped myself. I went, holy yeah. smoke, what's this? I just realized at that point just how serious these people were. Yeah. And they, I also realized they had unlimited funds, whereas we didn't, me and Lewis. Uh, you know, yeah. we, we had our houses. We had our homes. Right. Our homes were on the line. And they could literally break us just by just by time alone. Yeah. Break us. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so anyway, the court, court dragged on and on. And every day the guy was there, the, the lawyer cost us 150 bucks an hour. And it was more and more, and dragged out, dragged out, dragged out, and we were just we we were just getting yeah. burned out, completely completely burned out. <clears throat> okay, so one of the things that happened was this: this the, the big things that happened. This is the huge thing. Uh, I got a call one night, <clears throat> and it says Rick Simon. He said yes. Yep. It's about eight o'clock at night. He says, "Meet me at the Department of Water and Power downtown parking lot." On the second floor, <clears throat> I'm a friend. I have something for you. I said, well, ho, ho, who is this? <laughs> You're like, yeah, right. This is like out of the movies. It's like out of the movies. Yeah, it's like some kind of a spy novel, like a cheap, like a cheap spy novel. Right. <clears throat> and he says, no, this is, you just show up. i got something for you. Mm-hmm. I said, I want to bring uh, the, the duck with me. He says, that's fine. He says, but uh, don't don't ask who I am. Don't, he said, we just got something for you. Yeah. So I called I call Louie up. I said, Louie, uh, the they want to meet us down there. They got something for us. He said, "Well, let's let's go." <laughs> so um, we were supposed to meet at eleven o'clock. We got down a little bit early, and the parking lot is virtually empty because you know nobody's there except a few night watchmen and stuff like that. Right. So we're on the second floor. There's like three cars there, and uh, me and Lewis are sitting in our car, and uh, this car pulls up, and there's mud on the license plate. You can't see the number. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. This, is, this is straight out of, out of, out of a Robert Bumblin book. Yeah. So the guy walks out, and he's got a, a, a jacket with a collar pulled up. He's got a hat on with, with the, the, the baseball hat pulled down over his face. Jeez. His face. He's got this, got this like like a thing over his face, like a like a like a scarf. Yeah. And he, he has his bag with him. The bag is about two feet by three feet square. Uh huh. A brown mill, a Manila envelope, and it's really heavy. And he says. Here, that's all he says. Here, we said, "Whoa, whoa, wait a minute! Who are you? What's he doing?" He, says, he just turned. And I said, "Don't fall." So he gets in his car and he takes off. And I look at Lewis. Lewis looks at me, and there's this huge bag. It weighs about 12, 20, 25 pounds. Yeah. Like that. <clears throat> well, I said, "Well, let's let's go see what it is." So we find a Denny's. It's open all night long. And we go in there, get a cup of coffee, and we sit down, we open this thing up, and inside this manila envelope are these aerial photographs, aerial photos, hundreds of aerial photos yeah. of, the enti- of the entire Barstow to Vegas race course. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and they're from Caltrans. Now, I don't know if you know who Caltrans is. Caltrans, yeah. Caltrans are the people who maintain all those hydrogen lines. They do all this. Yeah. They, you know, California Department of Transportation. And they hate the BLM with a passion. The BLM it makes life so miserable on these people uh-huh. that you cannot, you can't believe it. They yeah. hate these guys. They hate each other so bad that you can't, you, you can't believe it. So here's this person. We assume that he was from Caltrans. He gave us all these aerial photos yeah. of the parts of the Vegas race course. And we go, whoa, look at this. This is the starting line. This is about going up the hill. This is that. Now, one of the biggest things that was in the that's complaining against us was this. 
There's a place called Coliseum Gorge. You go, you go up to the Clark Mountains. It's right before the Nevada state line. You go up to Clark Mountains, and you can descend to Clark Mountains. Uh-huh. And all the way down is a place called Coliseum Gorge. And Coliseum Gorge was uh, what they called a threatened area. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was running water and air all year round. It was uh, moss, uh, all kind of rocks on the ground. And most guys would not ride down it going on a, race, on a race course. They would get off their bike and walk their bike. It was it was yeah. really, really tricky. You know, I mean, a couple of good pros like Jay and Roberts or whatever, I'm sure, would ride their bike down. But, you know, most guys would walk their bike down right alongside their bike. And uh, just you get to the bottom of the thing about three or 400 yards, and then you're out in the, in the desert and you go to the Nevada State Line, and you continue onward. And when you, we all sort of look forward to uh, Coliseum Courts because it was sort of neat and uh, running water and a green moss on the rocks. <clears throat> and uh, we went down that thing, you know, illegally, according to the BLM. Yeah. Right. That was conspiracy. Well, here's an aerial photo, and Coliseum Gorge isn't, isn't there anymore. Instead of Coliseum Gorge, there's a fire road. I went, what the hell is this? Yeah. And we look, and we look, and there's a post-it note on that photo, and we go to the back where the post-it note tells us, and there is a thing, a memo from the BLM to Jupiter Mining Claims. And Jupiter Mining Claims is a mining company on top of the Clark Mountains, uh-huh. and they wanted to bring their trucks up there easier for easier access to the mining claim. And they, they, the BLM gave them permission to blade to put a road in, yeah, yeah, off, off the face of the earth, yeah. And you could drive a Buick taxi cab up there. Yeah. So here they are. They're bitching at us for having ridden ridden over this sensitive, this wonderfully sensitive area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah? And the BLM gave Jupiter Mine Claim permission to play the thing off. We go into court the next day, and we show this to the attorney. Uh, our attorney and our attorney says, "Holy shit!" Yeah. So the attorney goes, "Your Honor, I request permission to a special audience," uh, and he says, "This is most unusual." So we all go back in the room together, uh, me and Louis and the, uh, the attorney and whatever. <coughs> and he, he says, here, "Here you are, Your Honor. It's called Sam Gorge. These people are accused of writing down called Sam Gorge, and not, it doesn't exist anymore." And here is the BLM that gave him permission, mm-hmm. and uh, the BLM tried to have it thrown out of court because it was. Uh, wasn't introduced earlier as evidence right. yeah. and so forth. And the judge says, the judge, I never saw, the judge, by the way, was a member of the Sierra Club. Oh, yeah? Oh, jeez. Uh, I, I was really scared. Yeah. And uh, and uh, uh, we could have had him uh, recused, but the judge says, don't do it. Says, You're allowed to get a worse when this guy's least fair. Yeah. The guy got, the judge got so mad, so so utterly pissed, and he was, he was furious. Right. He got, he got so mad that he demanded that the BLM settle with us, and we had to go to a neutral ground, a neutral ground and settle. Wow. The neutral ground, of course, was the FBI building in downtown LA. Yeah. <laughs> and and that's that's where we settled. We got permission to ride the protest ride from then forth over the whole course. Yeah. Uh, and that's 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 the story there. Yeah. That, that's that's the kind of stuff we wanted to give the BLM or the uh, AMA. We wanted to give them all the aerophones and stuff, and they wouldn't take it. Just wouldn't do it. Wow. No, because we're we're we're, we're, we're Radicals. Radicals, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You could, so one could make a case that you guys have done more than the AMA has done in recent years. Uh, yeah. I I can't tell you what I think of the AMA in in a family audience. If I <laughs> if I turn loose, I would use 
all my old Navy invectives up yeah, in yeah. one fell swoop. Um, uh, I, I've never seen a bunch of dunderheads in my life. Uh, what they've done to this sport is they've, they've absolutely ruined it. Right. Ruined it. Well, super hunky. This has been uh, this has been great. Uh, thank you for doing this. Uh, you uh, you got a new website. Yeah, uh, I've had a little website right along where I sell yeah. my books and yeah, I've read it. I've gone on it a few times. It's super, super interesting. Yeah. Well, in about uh, about a week, ten days. In uh-huh. fact, uh, maybe this weekend, maybe next weekend, we're going to have this big website. Uh, a good friend of mine, Matt Cuddy, uh, Matt just got paralyzed recently. He was on a street bike and got taken off the face of the earth by some crazy guy. He was on his mule going to a courthouse to get some documents, and he's now in a wheelchair. And this is a guy who's been a dirt rider for his whole life. Uh-huh. And uh, so... He's a, he's a good guy. He's a great writer. He's a really good writer. So we're going to put together this thing. It's uh, superhunky.com. It's going to be free dirt bike classified ads for any and all. That's right. Anything to do with a dirt bike, uh, parts, dirt bike, yeah. uh, gear, trailer, truck, van, anything, hauler, anything to do, free dirt bike classified, all kinds of stories. Oh, cool, yeah. All kinds of neat stuff. So all they got to do is hit uh, superhunky.com, and there it is, man. It's going to be a lot of fun. And I'll tell you, this Matt Cuddy is a good, good writer. Yeah. You guys, uh, I'll, t- I'll tell you how good he is. He likes a, a go devil. You know what that is? No. Uh, I'll tell you. I'm going to make you look it up. He's, he's gonna, okay. He is, it was his first bike, a, do, a go devil. I uh, oh, just wrote it down. Lord. <laughs> good Lord. Uh, and you're doing some writing for v, uh, VMX magazine? <clears throat> Uh, do writing for uh, VMX yeah. and uh, Trail Rider. Trail Rider, yeah. And I've been writing for uh, for 12 years for uh, Offroad.com. Okay. Uh, I, but I think they're being sold, and I'm not sure what. But I did 12 years for those guys, and uh, I, I sell books and sell posters and whatever. Yeah, my brother, uh, yeah. my brother ordered some posters from you a little while back. So great, great, great. He, he says great. thank you for that. I believe you signed them yourself and everything. He was very excited about that. Um, yeah, that's, that's, I can actually write. <laughs> Well, hey, thank you for doing this. Uh, really, seriously, thank you for uh, for this. Oh. It's been a privilege for me to talk to you. Uh, grew up reading, you guys. grew up reading your stuff, and uh, you know, and I'm a passionate fan of the sport and, and everybody that covered it back then. And uh, yeah, this is really cool to uh, to have well, you on I'm, the show. I'm just happy to have lived through those wonderful times. Uh, I don't think those times could ever happen again, but they did happen. And I consider myself a very, very lucky individual to have lived through that. Yeah, and I, I would agree with that. Uh, all right, Rick. Well, thank you very much for being on the uh, BTOsports.com Transworld Motocross uh, podcast show. Thank you, buddy. All right, see ya. Bye-bye. Bye. This has been the BTOsports.com podcast show brought to you by Transworld Motocross. Don't forget to check out some of our past shows, including motocross legends such as The Beast from the East, Damon Bradshaw. It got to the point where I didn't want to leave home, and once I got to the race, I wasn't into it. If I wasn't going to give 100%, I'm not going to take their money. The working class hero, Doug Henry. It was definitely an emotional moment for me, just thinking to myself, that's it, you know, and it's, it's amazing the stuff that goes through your head in a short amount of time of the things that, you know, that I was going to miss. The daughter, Ron Machine. Until you really open your ears and you want to listen to what they're saying, it's like being a dead horse, and, you know, and I know from personal experience, did anybody ever sit me down? Of course, everybody did. 
Search Mathis on the iTunes Store to find these and many more great podcasts. I